This is Shift Run Stop. It's a fun podcast about games and cultural stuff and comedy and interviews. It's episode 14. It is, and we've got Duncan Goff with us this week. Lovely Duncan Goff. He, we know him from Playful 2009, last year, which was a conference about games. And he did a very interesting talk about the idea of what, what would it be like to play a game of Cares, that film Cares. That is in the Ken Loach movie, and we mm. pick his brain about that. We've got Dave Green again, of course. With Valentine's Day only just behind us, mm. Dave trawls the nation's supermarkets to find cut-price chocolates, and, uh, and in fact other things as well, savoury things. Yeah, all kinds of stuff. Like, you know, you don't usually think of crisps as being a romantic Valentine's present, but you'd be wrong, because Dave's got some with him in his rustly bag. The big, the big happy bag of snacks. In the snack sack <laughs> that he's evolved for this purpose. <laughs> we should point out that Dave actually answers uh, in in this week's episode answers a listener's question. Yeah, we've start. We've, we've been trying to use the um, Ask Dave Green hashtag on our Twitter account, which is actually fun stop. So if you have questions for Dave, he will, as we proved this week, answer them for you. Today we have Duncan Goff with us. I've got that right, isn't it? It's, yeah, like, it's, not, it's not Go or... God, well, no, no, but the, uh, the O-U-G-H is one of the kind of the hardest kind of pronunciations. It can be Bow, it can be Goff, it can be mm. Cough. It can, yeah, it's a tricky one. There are other ones here. You wouldn't be the first person to get it wrong, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, okay. Some of us listening to this might remember Duncan from uh, a recent Playful conference mm-hmm. um, where you talked about playing a game of Kez. Yep. For anyone who missed that, you know, what was the pricey of your presentation at Playful? It was this idea I had of a, of a fictive world, which is kind of born out of watching loads of kind of kids' TV and looking back on what I watched when I grew up. Programs like Press Gang and another one called Running Scared, and mm. they were the kind of great uh, sort of children's serial dramas, like young adult kind of stuff. Mm. And thinking, can you make a game out of that? Because we've got all these sort of MMOs, virtual worlds, action games and so on, and they're all kind of very full-on and violent. And then there's the... Uh, like the DS games that are very kind of My Little Pet, My Little Pony, and they're very kind of definitely for children, and there seems to be a kind of gap for the young adult audience. Mm. I just I just found it kind of strange that there was this gap for young adults. You hear a lot about kind of boys in particular who will play games and they just get into violent games all the time, and parents will, you know, think that games are a waste of time because there's nothing for young boys to kind of play with. There's the, there's the kind of kiddie games on the DS and stuff, and they'll get bored of them, and, and they're drawn to the action games. So, mm. And it's, it's difficult because there are a lot of games for boys out there. Most games are for boys, so mm. it's a bit weird to be saying that well, I want to kind of create games for boys and so on. But, you know, all the kind of games for girls, they exist, and I can't really I can't make a genuine game for girls because I'm, I'm not a girl and I don't really understand what that would be and what that would entail. And, and if I tried to make that, it would just look fake. Mm. But So I can make a game for a boy, and I, I can kind of relate to kind of the, the problems in growing up that kind of boys go through and everything. Um, and then I kind of tied it into this whole idea of Kez, which is a film that I watched when I grew up, which is a, a real kind of allegorical story about, you know, a young boy growing up and having kind of no option in the kind of, well, I guess, 50s and 60s about kind of just going down the mines and, and being in this Yorkshire town and having no kind of real prospects, I suppose. And that, that's something that, you know, it, it doesn't exist in, in this day and age, but you do have the idea that, you know, kids have no prospects, they've got nowhere to go. And, it, and it's a really good story. It's a real kind of, a very simple story. The, the film's actually kind of quite long. It's a, it's a Ken Loach film, so I'm not going to criticise anything about it. <laughs> there are kind of chunks of it that you would say you would throw out, and if you're going to make a game of it, you can't get rid of this, that and the other. But it would be like a really simple story, and I think, well, you know, that would be a fantastic thing to try and build. And so where are you now with, with this idea of fictive worlds? Is it something you're, you're actively working on at the moment? Yeah, yeah, it's a, definitely. Um, so the, the, the initial idea was kind of getting up on stage in front of people and talking about it and just seeing whether I looked really stupid. The reaction was like, it wasn't too bad, so I figured there's something in there. 
Um, and then, you know, it was thinking about the stories and so on. And, and I did like waste about six months of kind of sitting down and building prototypes that you know, weren't really going to work and they weren't that good. And I wanted it to be a, a kind of web-based or browser-based game. But the interfaces for them are kind of very limited. I was chatting to Alexis from Echo Bazaar and, and kind of explaining this problem I had. Like I wanted to make a, a browser game, but it needs to be a fictive world. And mm-hmm. if I'm not going to use Flash, then it's just going to be text-based. And if it's text-based, and that kind of limits you a little bit. And you know, suddenly I was just like down to kind of putting words on a page and that's not particularly immersive. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he suggested, well, why not do it in Flash? Why not do it 3D? Why not do it like first person? You know, I started to think, well, that's a fantastic idea. Kind of went away and thought about it a lot more. And you think, well, if I'm going to make a game that's about kind of a kid in school, then that kid's height is going to be about sort of there. You know, they're going to be like four or five foot and the teachers are going to be like six foot. So you get this kind of, again, a kind of sense of immersion that you're looking up at the teachers or, you know, you're looking around the room, but you have to look at people that, you know, I was always told when I was at school, you know, look at me when I'm talking to you and I've been told off many times. And, you know, that's going to happen in the game. That's going to be a great thing to do. That's going to be very kind of putting you in the kind of the feeling of being in character. Um, And then something I discovered a couple of weekends ago was that boys have like, I don't know how true this is, but boys have kind of worse secondary hearing than girls in that Mm. girls can kind of understand what's going on around them. But boys are very much like, if they're looking at you, they're they're focused and they can hear what you're saying. And, you know, I have this with my son. If he's not looking at me, I could just be talking to a brick wall. (laughs) And, uh, you know, there's that. You you could easily do that in a first person game. If if you're not looking at the teacher who's telling you off who's six foot and you're five foot, you can't hear them and they're getting angry with you. And so you have to Mm. look up at them. And then that's only when you kind of start to hear them clearly. You can kind of play with the kind of visual aspects of the game and the audio aspects of the game. My sort of post-apocalyptic report this week, I went to the original end of the M1, which is where it joins the A1, before they built the modern extension in 1977. So it hasn't been used since then, except for temporarily in 1993. It was reopened when there was a bomb at Brent Cross, so there was traffic that went through for a while then. Um, but since 1993, nothing. So you can go along. It's uh, free to enter, obviously. <laughs> Nobody's exploited this as a tourist attraction yet. But it's incredibly interesting in post-apocalyptic. My hands are so cold now. It's um, it's quite sort of exposed up here. Ah, there's some bonus wildlife. There's a small black cat. It's quite it's quite good because it's kind of a bis- behind the scenes of um, the infrastructures, if you like, that you normally just process as abstract in your head, like a motorway that's just a line that takes you from one place to the other. Or, you know, there is a life back here. The winter has done some work to cut this stuff back. But if you come in the summer, it, you can't even see the road. So I walk a little bit up the other way. And just absolutely a carpet of broken glass down here. And although it seems like a nature trail because you haven't got the... You can't see the railings so much. They're slightly disguised under the undergrowth. There's this enormous row of fantastic and unmistakable motorway lamps they're incredible and they've just left them there Duncan we'd know of you through things like PMOG uh, which you were involved in from the very start, I guess, with, mm-hmm. with Justin Hall and, and others. Yeah. Uh, tell us about, about PMOG and, and where it is now, because it just relaunched, didn't it? Just recently relaunched, so yeah. Um, 
it exists again, which is fantastic. Mm. Um, it was Justin's idea. I can't, I can't take the credit for that. Justin and Mercy kind of had this idea for PMOG, this kind of web browser-based game, and they were looking for someone to build it because they, they don't have the, they weren't kind of technical programmers and so on. So they, through a friend of a friend, kind of got put in contact with me, and I started to build mockups for them. Mm. Um, in the beginning, it was just a, an HTML frame set of like you type an address on the top, and you know you could you could kind of play the game a lot like the kind of the dig toolbar and the mm. super okay. whatever. It's yeah, so like a, sort of a fixed toolbar that would that Absolutely. would live persistently in in your browser. Yeah, yeah. and and PMOG for anyone who hasn't played it. Stands for passively multiplayer online game. That's it. Yeah. Which I thought was the best name for a <laughs> game for a long time. For the pun alone, it's well yeah, worth it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And again, I didn't come up with that, so I can't take anything. <laughs> but you know, I'll bask in its reflected glory. And people know it as the Nethernet. It's the Nethernet. Yes, which yeah. was what it was let more recently known. And yeah. that's and they're both the same thing. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Right. But if you go to the Nethernet.com, you will find it. It's a Firefox plugin. So mm. to get that kind of the game is about kind of playing playing a game of the internet. So it's about kind of playing on the open internet. And that was really a reaction. There was kind of two things we did that were reactions to the other games that were around at the time one there was there were a lot of kind of games that were similar but they were all kind of fixed to one website or fixed to one kind of mm. one problem and PMOG and the Netherlet is all about kind of opening up the entire internet you can play anything on the internet um, and the other one is that a lot of the games at the time were very real-time focused which with hindsight you know everyone has gone kind of real-time and it's, it's the biggest thing on the web is to be real-time I still don't know whether it's the correct thing to do but for us it was all about asynchronous gameplay about that you know there was an element of kind of casual gaming in there as well in the sense that it's an MMO but I don't have time to kind of you know dive into that MMO and play it and level up for hours and hours and hours at a time so it was an asynchronous game so that you could play for like five minutes at a time um, we had like mines and crates and things these little kind of tools that you could use around any website and you it would give you like five or ten minutes to kind of go and play and put mines on websites or put crates on websites for people to kind of loot so if you had the plugin installed in your browser you could go to TechCrunch and leave a mine and then the next player who Absolutely. had the same plugin installed and was signed in, yeah. when they hit TechCrunch, they would be blown up and their browser would shake, it would flash red, and they'd lose some, lose some points and some armour and stuff. <laughs> it's a, it was an entirely kind of user-generated content game, so you would go somewhere, invest some time into kind of playing the game and leaving some things on the web, and then go away, and you would kind of, if you were still kind of turned on to the internet, to the, to the nethernet rather, you would get kind of notifications that someone's tripped your mind or someone's looted your crate. <laughs> but if you'd pause the game to kind of go and get on with some work and like your, your boss is watching or whatever, yeah. you, would, you would catch up on that stuff later on, so kind of asynchronous gameplay and playing across the whole web it was it, you know, those were kind of two key concepts it's a bit like a sort of augmented reality system but for the web instead of for the real world so there was this additional layer that yep. normally you couldn't see but if you were if you were signed in and you had pmog installed then and, and later now than that mm-hmm. uh, then yeah, you could see all up. this kind of extra stuff that was going on and it seems like it's one of the few games that's actually addressed the web as as a as an interface really that games seem to be quite obedient and they don't seem to be actually saying well we mainly use the internet now the old text adventure games that i used to play when i was little and try and write were so impressive and sort of um, engaging because they used the interface that you were used to at the time which was Mm -hmm. like you felt like you were talking to the computer and nowadays obviously you don't have that but the interface that people use now is the internet and it seems like we're not really ready to admit that. We're still saying, no, we use we use a desktop. The internet is one of the features that we use. I don't know. It seems like there's something quite impressive about being able to interact with the web and, and it's quite honest and quite immediate in a way that the old text adventures were, I think, because you felt like you were talking to the computer somehow. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, I'm talking to the web now. I'm putting stuff on it and messing around with it. And there aren't, I can't think of any other games that maybe there are some. Well, I, I wonder, Duncan, to what extent you think... Um Facebook is playing a, an important role. Whether that's becoming the short circuit or the you know the shortcut for doing kind of social gaming, and, and what you think about that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, I worked 
I, when I started working in games, they were called advert games that we built. They were just games that, you know, Pepsi would kind of commission you to build a game for them because it kind of drove people to their site and they would stay there for ages. And then kind of overnight it became casual games. And again, kind of overnight it's become social gaming now. And, and that's kind of pretty much, it's the same games all the way along, but it's, you know, it's all based on Facebook now. I'm not really a fan of Facebook games, um, but, you know, if you want to make money with games, then that's where you go. That's where you kind of build things. Um, but what Facebook's done, I think, is kind of really legitimise the whole kind of micropayment stuff, the virtual item stuff, where you go and pay like a small amount for like some artichokes in Farmville or whatever. And you know, it's, it's brought that on, but you know, not without problems. I'm not really much of a fan of like Mafia Wars and Farmville and everything. They don't excite me. They don't. I, I don't know. And to a degree, I think I'm going uh, reacting to that and kind of going in the opposite direction, saying right, I want to make kind of performance art games, maybe or mm. something. You know, I'm kind of trying to go as far away from that again as I can as possible. But you know, if you do go too far, then you're not really going to make much money out of it. So you have to kind of compromise a little bit and see there. But I don't know. Facebook games are they're exciting, but was it a while ago? Scrabulous was the biggest game on there, and that was just Scrabble ripped off and put on Facebook. So. <laughs> You know, there's nothing to be proud of, is it? Really? And even the big ones now, it seems like they have to spend so much money on advertising to get the users to use them in the first place. Yeah, yeah. And they're all essentially just you know, a bit, bit of brain crack. They're all kind of they've got a mechanism that makes you addicted to them. And mm-hmm. Yeah. The one that pays the most for advertising is the one that then wins. Yeah, yeah, and the one that is willing to kind of do the most borderline kind of unacceptable things with your friends and so on, and kind of introduce your friends in and make sure your friends come along and so on. They're the ones that, you know, they will probably do the best. The other thing that we've uh, we've been excited by this last few weeks is people sending in recordings of the inside of their fridge, mm. which might sound a bit weird if you haven't heard one of the early episodes of Chiffron Stock where we recorded the inside of a fridge in Chiffron Stock Towers. And it's got to be from the inside. And this, we should say, is inspired by Rue's Flickr group of photos taken inside your fridge with the flash with the door shut. Yes, the group's called In the Fridge. The one thing you'll notice about this first recording, which is from uh, Wowser, uh, a.k.a. Ed Ross, is that he not only has got the fridge, uh, not only has he got the MP3 recorder in the fridge, he's also got his camera in there with it as well. Mm. So you'll hear the door closing and then you'll hear the lovely sound of a flash going off and recharging. Oh, Because nice. he's doing both at once. That's good. It's brilliant. And then the, the second recording that we got uh, in the last few days was from Karen. Karen's fridge is a lot louder, I think it's fair to say. Karen uh, recorded this over the, over the space of, actually, uh, I learned from the email, more than half an hour. And so what you hear are edited <laughs> highlights of the fridge. The way it ends is the fridge opening and the dawn chorus outside it's or something. Brilliant. Which suggests that he got up in the night to <laughs> record this one. <laughs> We're loving that, and, and uh, yeah. Uh, to keep them coming, really. Really, please. We want a fridge every week. <laughs> if we can, if we can possibly manage it. And I think we talked about this before, but don't don't try and put your recorder into any other household white goods or implement. You well, know. not while they're running. I mean, the, the microwave, obviously, don't be nice to that. hear what the door sounds like opening and closing. But whatever you do, don't turn it on. Can we make a microwave-proof microphone? 
Song has a challengelessness. Yeah, some of you out there will almost certainly already have done this, but I'm not. <laughs> I don't want to be endorsing it or anything. <laughs> if, if for some reason you only have a freezer and no fridge, then we'd like to hear the inside of that as well. If you're in a hotel, what about mini the inside bar. of the mini bar? What does your mini bar sound like? See, that'd be good. That'd be a good collection. I'd be up for hearing that. In a first-person game, you can't cry a, a scene in a game because it. It's interactive, it's not passive, there's no kind of sentiment, I think, for whatever reason, as soon as you start to play that character, as soon as you have agency in decisions and you start to do things, then you can't have sentiment. The, the two seem to be mutually exclusive, and mm -hmm. I don't know why, I don't know how that is, but it doesn't seem to be the case. But you can have comedy, and you can laugh, mm -hmm. and, and you know, people do play first-person games and, and laugh at stuff that happens. Mm -hmm. but, you know, if I was building a game, I would, I would avoid kind of trying to make people cry, or rather mm -hmm. make people laugh, I think that's, that's better. Mm -hmm. And even if you, know, you build a, a serious kind of victim world story that's got, you know, uh, serious overtones you could still kind of find the humor in that so mm -hmm. that's, that's worth kind of pursuing I think you know and if, if games can't make you cry that's okay that's that's what TV does and TV mm -hmm. does that exceptionally well have you ever played a game that's come close to making you cry I don't know maybe like Professor Layton because I can't solve the puzzle <laughs> <laughs> it makes me With frustration. stupid yeah Layla was asking on her blog the other day about uh, you know has, has any game ever affected you as a you know are there any affecting games and I posted a link to a game that I heard about just recently it's been around for a while called Passage I want Layla to go and play it and see if it makes her cry it didn't make me cry mm -hmm. but <laughs> it, it is quite moving no it won't but it is quite moving and it, mm -hmm. it does have especially if you play it a couple of times and then read his write up of why he wrote it and what mm -hmm. it's there to do I don't want to say too much because I think it's probably worth playing it before mm. knowing anything about it. There's all those uh, kind of horror games that are very affecting, mm. aren't they? Like Resident Evil, Silent Hill, those ones, mm. they're supposed to be quite... I just don't think they are, though. I just think, oh, it's just no. like some polygons walking down the stairs. Or, like the horror scene... ones, it's like Silent, Silent Hill or whatever it is. It's like, oh, yeah. There is a scene in the first Half-Life game where a door closes behind you, you're in a long corridor, mm. and then all the lights turn off one by one. Doom, 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 and you're left in a pitch-black corridor and you know something nasty is just about to happen, and then it does. And mm. that really made me jump and, and made me frightened. Games do adrenaline really well, I think. Mm. You can kind of play Left 4 Dead and be really hyped up by that. Mm. It is adrenaline, and you're, kind of, you're getting that through you know, shooting weapons and killing people and stuff. That's a genuine emotion compared to TV, which is kind of this kind of idea of sentiment and not being you know, particularly uh, authentic. But. I don't know, though. Wouldn't you say that good TV drama can bring genuine emotion, that sentiment is maybe a bit of a kind of derogatory, derisory term for something that could actually be... Why isn't it as powerful as watching a play? Why isn't The Wire, you know, doing the same things to you as watching Shakespeare or Chekhov or...? But I think that watching a play on stage is less affecting than watching it on TV. Really? Yeah, because I think TV is a massive, all-consuming manipulation of emotion. Right. Whereas watching a play is artifice. You're watching the... Um, the, the theatricality, you can tell that it's fake. Do you give yourself more permission to be involved and to suspend your disbelief and to be part of the story with a play than you would with the television where you're kind of lounging mm. around at home and but it's I one step removed from reality because it's on the screen? I think when you can see, mm, see nice. expressions close up and stuff is different. I think if you can see people interacting with each other in a realistic way from close, it's okay. so different to seeing people standing on a stage with the set that looks, you can tell immediately is fake mm, and interesting. I don't know. But whereas dance I think is very affecting. Like I can get, I can be very moved watching dances and music and that sort of thing. It's like, oh yeah, that's much more, seems much more pure and direct. Now. I don't know. Mm. And you don't mean MTV either, do you? No. <laughs> you don't mean booty shaking the ballet. dancing. The ballet. I'm on computers. I'm on the shore. I'm in the ether. I've got a 
it's called Microcomputer System User Guide, and it's basically a guide to the old BBC computers, and uh, and they have some some program listings in there. So this this was published in 1982, and this if you ever uh, had a, a BBC Micro uh, computer, you probably saw a book like this or, or this one. I remember it from mm. my, my childhood. Anyway, this is how I learned to program. And it felt huge at the time, didn't it? It was like so daunting, like a massive manual. And actually, it is nearly 500 pages. But, it's a monster of a But book. when you think about how much there is to learn about BBC programming, mm. it's, there's not actually that much in here. There's but a lot of text. In fairness, a lot of descriptive text. And, and, and plenty of uh, programming examples. Yeah. So, you know, if you were going to learn to do uh, a centigrade to Fahrenheit um, conversion program. This it's in here. There's yeah. definitely a program for that in <laughs> that here. That would be there. Yeah. Um, Enter your name. We'll print so your name back out again. Nice OCR extended fonts and stuff. Um, also, it says um, there's a program here for working out your age or something, and it says letter age equals thirty eight. That's their example age. For someone that might be using this book. <laughs> um, anyway, and the other one I've got is um, is my Acorn Electron programming guide from um, nineteen eighty four, which is slightly more colourful. It's well, I love this book because into... it's sort of I think for kids really, and they did a whole range of these. Robert Graves, uh, Richard Graves rather, Robert Graves' son. And David, who I assume is his brother, and Richard Graves did some other books with his other brother. Oh. And he did a load of um, home computing guides, amongst other like weird things, like a book about Hausmann, the guy who did the um, the boulevards in Paris in the 19th century. He did like, them? He designed them? He designed or? the, yeah, the Hausmann boulevards are quite famous. So wow. he's like his, his historian and all sorts of other things. Anyway... I might put some pictures from my Acorn Electron Use Guide up. It's a beautiful book. I don't remember that one, although it's um, it's got that kind of pleasingly yellowed look to it. It's, it's going a bit mouldy. A bit moulded in. <laughs> it has got some... It needs scanning it quickly before it degrades living completely. Living in it. So this would be the kind of book that would teach you how to write um, kind of branching, choose-your-own-adventure-style games. Um, but also it's got a thing here saying, here is the haunted house, it has eight rooms, where is the ghost? And, and you can draw this house um, and create spooky sounds using the sound command which oh. is just the word sound <laughs> obviously being easy basic and guessing guessing the number and stuff oh. um but it's really just it that that looks like granny's garden doesn't it, it? it actually does look a lot like granny's garden so if you want some advice on um writing a bbc basic game uh, come to me and i'll i'll look in the manuals for you layla will consult for you. i'm in computers I'm in the mainframe. I'm in your headphones. How did you get into programming, Duncan? Gosh? Well, actually, interestingly enough, um, I just discovered today that Big Track has been launched again. Do you know Big Track? Do you remember Big I Track? I saw you tweeting about it, but I don't it's a, it's know. A it's big, a big truck of, thing. Yeah, a big, it's a big truck, is <laughs> what it is. Yeah. But it has a little kind of basic, very, very, very basic programming language on it. Yeah. But you can kind of program in, like, go forward, go left, go right, and mm. then stop, and then, like, fire a laser which is like kind of just a little red light that flashed okay and that's i love i loved kind of playing with that when i was a kid so that's just been relaunched this week mm. well they said they're going to relaunch it so i'd imagine it comes out for christmas so was that your first programming that was my first then? programming thing that i ever did was going to drive a truck around <laughs> but then after that um probably not a lot for a long long time mm-hmm. um i remember playing with uh, c and stuff like that and i played with an, an atari i didn't have the bbc but i had an atari so okay. i played with one of those but nothing for ages because I wasn't interested in programming. I kind of had a, a period of like being into computers and so on and then just got completely distracted and I picked up a guitar and kind of did the guitar thing for ages and ages and ages and ages. And then when that sadly failed, I kind of went, oh, computers. And 
remember that there were computers around and they were you know by the time I got back into it there was I started in COBOL which is just a weird language wow. but then uh, C and then there were all the kind of scripting languages like PHP and Python and but everything. how did you uh, start in COBOL like were you working at IBM or something <laughs> that's bizarre I took a I took a, a study by post course in programming because I, I kind of realised that I, I enjoyed working with computers and the, the dot com boom was going on it seemed like mm. a sensible career move because mm. uh, I was working in Woolworths at the time so there's not, not many of them yeah. left these days right. <laughs> uh, so I did a, a programming by mail course and that was like because I didn't have a computer at the time I couldn't afford one they sent you like A4 kind of graph paper and a couple of questions and then a big kind of thick book on how to program in COBOL and then mm. I kind of sat there and I wrote out all my answers did it all manually without a computer posted it off and then they compiled it for me and then they returned it with all the, the errors on it and everything wow. which is pretty good so proper old school programming yeah, it's yeah, like they couldn't like punch cards punch cards exactly yeah, yeah. It's snack time once again. Um, we should say, oh, look, we're recording this the, the day after Valentine's Day. Yeah, it's the 15th today. And uh, call me an old romantic, but the only thing I like more than Valentine's Day <laughs> is, is the week after, when really I think you have to embrace the crass commercialisation of the festival and go out and try and find all of the uh, like perhaps misguided, uh, potentially romantic tie-ins that yeah. have been reduced to clear uh, on, the, on, the, on the supermarket shelves. So that, that's, what, that's what I've been trying to do uh, this afternoon. Mm-hmm. And number number one on the list, uh, one pound fifty in uh, in Tesco in Brent Cross Tesco. Here's what I knew. What Cadbury's new multinational overlords have come up with: the Toblerone to Bell. And you, you can describe the box if you like. Well, uh, like as you can see, it's keep it's in keeping with the, with the classic Toblerone themes. It's a big triangle, which box. are triangularity. Looks also, like jockey. <laughs> for anyone who hasn't spotted it uh, in the past, the. Uh, the bear hiding in the mountain. Ghostly bear. Is there, a, is there a spooky bear in the mountain? Go, like the go. rabbits in the background of Masquerade. There is. Go. I, can't, I can hardly even see it. Oh, yeah. Ghostly okay. swing. Yeah, you see. Sort of on his hind Catch legs. the light. But yeah, so uh, Toblerone Tobel came out before Christmas and it was kind of a Christmassy thing and they were going oh yeah like get this it's a new kind of uh, Toblerone uh, <laughs> presumably I don't know I don't know what the shelf life is of this product but then they thought oh we've got a few boxes left over let's stick a little thing that says 20 little tokens of love on the front and they've cunningly oh, the, the, the Christmas Tobel logo mm-hmm. with, a, with a round O the Valentine's Tobel logo plastered cynically over the top the heart-shaped O. Oh, it's it's it, it's amazing. It's all about it's all about the subliminal influence, clearly, with the <laughs> amazing, with the, with the craft corporation. <laughs> and to be honest, mm. it's it's okay. Yeah. It's like eating a Toblerone. It's, it? It, well, and it's it's a slightly milder version of eating a Toblerone mm. because I've never found a way of delicately eating a Toblerone. <laughs> yeah. You're always trying to like it's 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 exactly the right size to kind of gouge the top of your the roof, the roof of your mouth. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you're kind of like biting chunks <laughs> off of it and then going, oh god, this is this is a bit of a mouth. This <laughs> <laughs> chunk only and just fits in. My mouth. Like, and then they start, <laughs> then they start doing fruit and nut, and this cast everything. So, uh, a positive direction, and look, look out for them. Uh, uh, well, I think one pound fifty-one reduced, and you know, thank goodness people aren't paying. Don't no, no longer have to pay forty quid. Which is essentially oh no, not forty, forty quid, four <laughs> pounds, four pounds for twenty, which yes. is pricing each one of these at twenty p each. I think they're much, they're much better, better value at one fifty. Good. The uh, and this isn't technically a Valentine's product. Although there has been controversy about the hints of pink on the wrapper. Oh. This, my friends, as I rustle it <laughs> yeah. for the listeners, this is the Galaxy Bubbles. Mm. And uh, I don't think this has really been rushed to market to capitalise on Cadbury's perceived weakness uh, at the moment. But uh, essentially, it's a um, 
Oh, well, you can, you can, what? you can imagine. It's going to be an arrow, surely. <laughs> no, it's a creamy arrow. Well, girly arrow. Well, I think, I think, oh, well, well, is break, this, break off a piece if you like. Is this Gambry's? Uh, is this galaxy's first foray into the bubbly? This, is, uh, I think, this it is, does look exactly like an arrow. Look at the size. It's galaxy's whisper for heaven's sake. It's mm. well, may, may, maybe the bubble size is kind of in between. It's nice. It enhances the smooth flavour that you usually get from Galaxy. Mm. Other chocolate brands are available. I like it. So, it's good to see people using the Ask Dave Green facility on Twitter. (laughs) Yes, so someone has said, does the More Nuts Snickers actually have more nuts in it? Um, Was it it Wowser? Might have been Wowser. I I like to build this up and and give the impression that, oh, perhaps I would have gone off and done a test or something like that. Weirdly, you can't get normal, not very very many nuts Snickers um, in the shops anymore. I mean, the thing is... We've got a more nuts snicker here. Uh, two points. First of all, it does say 10% more nuts on the packet. So I think, uh, again, I haven't researched this in any, in any real detail, but presumably they can't put 10% more nuts on the packet, and like that's kind of a trade descriptions issue. So Unless probably, they briefly reduced the number of nuts. Yeah, about pri- prior Ooh. to that. Yeah, for just like a week or something. There <laughs> um, must be a limit to how long they can. And, I mean, the other weird thing is, to be honest, 10% more nuts isn't a huge amount more nuts. It's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> only two more nuts. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, the funny thing is, we're eating it now. It does, it does seem a little bit nutty. It's quite nutty. Yeah. I'm not sure. To me, it uh, sounds like a Snickers. Uh, well, yeah. And, and to be, you know, how many of us can, can, can reliably identify a 10% uh, or <laughs> a increase or decrease in anything mm. you, using, using just our senses without. Well, we were we're... hoping you might be able to. <laughs> well, 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 well perhaps. perhaps. That's why you're here. Well, <laughs> what do we pay you for? <laughs> well, Give well, it well, A, it seems, it seems nutty. But, you know, and, and, and I, I, put the, I, I put it to, uh, what's his name, Edward? Uh, like if he if he can detect ten percent differences in, in ingredients in other products, I'd like to hear it. Yeah, it's already based on nuts. Quite I'd, I'd heavy. like a Snickers with more chocolate on it. Yeah. If anything. <laughs> uh, like, well, I, I I can't top that route. I think it'd be brilliant if they did a Snickers with I don't fifty percent more nuts. <laughs> and that was sort of like <laughs> embedded in the uh, in the outside. <laughs> or like, oh, but to wrap up yeah. this um this quite quite deeply moving, slightly bittersweet, um. Valentine's week trawl. Um, you're probably wondering, well, all these all these desserts and kind of mm. um, sweet products are pretty much par for the course. What are the savoury manufacturers? What, what can they offer? Is there, is there going to be a Valentine's pizza or something? Oh, well, I'm glad you asked. This is a product, it's not actually new this year, but I've been hunting for it uh, since around 2007. Ooh. Tyrell's mm-hmm. manufacturers of, uh, of upmarket crisps have. I don't know, perhaps you'd like to read out the packets. These are Tyrell's hand cooked potato chips, and then the title in a different font Lovely Chips. Mm. <laughs> Strawberry, sweet chilli, and white wine. Oh, exquisite. And what there's what, a, what there's could. A sort of picture of Marlena Dietrich or somebody. Being eaten uh, by a vampire. Yeah, some sort of romantic clinch um, from a black and white. Film noir or something. Mm, yeah, well, that, I mean, that, that's that, that's that's pretty much in keeping for the uh, for the for the Tyrell Corporation, as I okay. like to call them, assuming that they go on to to do all that stuff documented in the Blade Runner movie. Yeah. And um, <laughs> I'm looking so far behind. Strawberry flavored crisps. I'm I'm skeptical. I have to say, but I'm going to try and eat one. And there's a bit of a twist here. Doesn't taste of any of those. Doesn't. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you, oh, you, 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 you've learned well. You've like, uh, I don't know, and like, and, and to be, uh, and I don't know. I can see where they've gone with it. You, it tastes you, a bit of chili. 
to a certain extent, if, if the product actually did taste of all three of these things, it would be quite disgusting. <laughs> so they like, and, and they claim that they've used uh, strawberry powder and chilli powder and white wine powder, which presumably they just... White wine. I don't know how, how you... Where can even, you get that? <laughs> in, in wartime. Um, yeah. Well, it turns out if you take those three ingredients, powder them, and put them on a, a hand-cooked potato chip, it tastes a bit like... Any other kettle chip? Yeah, it's all right. Yeah, top 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 marks for trying, but yeah. like they, I, think they, I don't. Th- I think they tried. They haven't really pulled it off, and I was also disappointed that I didn't win a diamond <laughs> uh, that was uh, that, that was threatened to be inside one bag of Terrell's lovely chips. Dave, thank you for uh, coming in with all your Valentine's tat. <laughs> it's, it's my pleasure. <laughs> Having, of course, more snacks, more guests. Mm. Got Phil Guyford coming in next week. Yes, Phil, you might know from the internet know, mainly. Phil, he's he's, there, he's everywhere. He's yeah, the I one with the bald head. Phil. Yeah, he's very tall and he's and lovely. He's, he has. I don't think it mind us saying that he has got a bald head. He does have a bald head. It's true. Yeah, it's factually true. <laughs> he couldn't deny it, and he wouldn't want to because it's true. And he's very nice and he's very lovely. quite softly spoken and very sweet. So yeah. we're looking forward to talking to him. Yeah, so we've been we've been busy drawing all your tapes. If, obviously, if you've if you've uh, not got round to ordering one yet, and, and then we can tempt you with a tape. Uh, I don't know. The more I say it to people, the more I explain it when people ask me, the more it sounds just completely random and weird and made up. But actually, people have cottoned onto the idea and really yeah. appreciate just how difficult and weird and quirky it is to have a cassette tape of an episode of a podcast yeah. to the extent they're prepared to pay real money for it. So. Yeah. Even with often with nothing to play it on, they just like the idea, which is lovely. So, yeah. Thanks, thank you very much. Thank you to uh, Ian Stopher, to Reverend Dan Cat. Mm-hmm. Obviously, HD four one 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 seven. Karen. Nobody uh, would doubt the super fan status of some of these people already. <laughs> uh, Michael Reeve. Um, what's that? Bobbert D. Bobbert D. Yep. At Bobbert D on on Twitter. Uh, Phil Simmons. Um, guy called Liam. He sent us a nice email as well, we should say. Yeah, we, he did, actually. And Damien Jennings. So thank you, all those people. That was really kind. And thank you. We hope that you will actually listen to these tapes. Um, if you can send us any evidence of yourself listening to or playing or owning the cassettes, that would be fantastic. So you go to shiftrunstop.co.uk. On the right-hand side, there's a thing that says support Shift Run Stop, and there's some, you know, there's some options there. You can, you can buy a tape. You know, I'm, not, really, I'm not suggesting you should. Really, we don't, don't really like want asking that. for it, but, right. it, you know, it would help to make sure that we can carry on the, the high quality of Shifran Stop entertainment that you've been accustomed to. It would be nice to give Dave some money for all the snacks he keeps feeding us. Yeah, it would actually. And, uh, you know, all the other expenses we have. So, um... <laughs> like please. lipstick and uh, NES games. Yeah, all those kind of things. <laughs> Our website, for people who don't know, shifranstop.co.uk. Twitter is at shifranstop. And you can email us at podcast at uk, And please do, because we love hearing from you. Uh, there's quite a few of you out there now, and that's very weird. I'm still getting used to the idea that this gets listened to by more than about a dozen people. Um, but, yeah, if you've heard something you love or heard something you think we got wrong or whatever, uh, yeah, do let us know, because we're always really, really keen to hear from you.
Duncan Goff, thank you for joining us and uh, coming and, and, and talking to us about, about games and fictive worlds and uh, stuff. Thank you very much. Talking vaguely about vague ideas, about vague things. It's exciting, though. We, we look forward to seeing your projects being made real and coming to fruition. As do I. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you. Bye. 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 Bye.